welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they all have one language. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there, over the face of all the earth. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Genesis chapter 11, verses 6 through 9, New King James Bible. Hello, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. We're very glad to be with you today as we continue the series we started several weeks ago on Anchored by Truth. We are calling this series, 10 Facts Every Christian Needs to Know. In the studio today, we have R.D. Fierro. R.D. is an author and the founder of Crystal Sea Books. Today, we are going to cover the ninth of the 10 facts that we are discussing during the series. For any listeners who want to hear the discussion about any of the first eight fact episodes of Anchored by Truth, the episodes are available on their favorite podcast app or from our website, crystalseabooks.com. R.D., can you give us a brief overview of what we have covered in the series to this point? Well, I would also like to start out by saying hi to all the listeners joining us here today and to thank them for their interest in Anchored by Truth as a radio show or a podcast, but also to thank them for their interest in the Bible. The Bible is the only sure foundation for our lives and for our faith. And the more time that we're willing to devote to our understanding of the Bible, frankly, the better our lives are going to be and the better influences that we can be on our communities and on the world around us. And as you just mentioned, this series is all about giving listeners a solid, factual foundation for being assured that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. People need that foundation today. They need that factual foundation because so many of the narratives that circulate in our culture today not only do not acknowledge the Bible as the Word of God, but these narratives actively promote the fallacious notion that science, archaeology, history, whatever, actually, quote, disprove the reliability of Scripture. Now, this notion that somehow science, archaeology, history have disproven the reliability of Scripture, that is countered by facts. But frankly, those facts won't do us any good if we're not aware of them. So in this series, we are highlighting some of those facts. The first five facts that we covered in this series demonstrated that the popular narratives of deep time, a universe billions of years old, evolution, life arose by chance, and uniformitarianism, that everything is continuing today the way it always has, do not nearly possess the quality of scientific support that they are normally assumed to possess. In short, those narratives are not trustworthy 
as a basis for forming a coherent worldview. And yet those narratives often are used as the basis for a worldview, a worldview that does away with the need for God to explain the physical universe and to explain the origin of life. Now, after we talked about those first five facts, with fact number six, we moved on to beginning a demonstration that the foundational book of the Bible, which is the book of Genesis, is in fact a trustworthy foundation for our understanding of the universe, of life, and of human history. And that's the theme that we are continuing as we move through these last five of the ten facts. We're showing in these five facts that the most disputed book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, is a reliable record, notwithstanding the attacks that are hurled against it. So far, we saw from fact six that the available evidence demonstrates that Moses was the author of Genesis and the other four books of the Pentateuch, the name given to the first five books of the Bible. Why is it important that we know that Moses wrote Genesis? Because it helps us date when Genesis was written. The traditional date assigned to Moses writing the Pentateuch is in the 15th century B.C. Many scholars will place the date of composition for the book of Genesis starting around 1445 or 1446 B.C., which is the so-called early date for the start of the Hebrew exodus out of Egypt. But even the scholars that like the supposed late date for the exodus they would place the composition of the Pentateuch in the 13th century B.C. In other words, Genesis and the other books of the Pentateuch were written about 3,500 years ago. So it is a reasonable question to ask whether we have evidence from those 3,500 years of human history that we can point to as validating the record that Moses gave us. And the answer to your question is a decided yes. So we began our demonstration of the fact that the events described in the book of Genesis have left their imprint on today's world with facts 7 and 8. Fact 7 was that there is not only geological and paleontological evidence that the flood of Noah occurred, as described by the Bible, we covered that in fact 3, but that there is also geographic, historical, and linguistic evidence of the reliability of the text. Said slightly differently, There is considerable evidence that the names of Noah's grandsons have been preserved in remarkable ways on at least three different continents, on Africa, Europe, and Asia. And the names of Noah's grandsons have been preserved in the names of cities, regions, rivers, tribal names, and even in languages. Now, fact eight that every Christian needs to know is that the biblical time periods and population sizes are far more reasonable when it comes to explaining the current size of the world's human population than the evolutionary alternatives that are commonly believed. And we pointed out in that episode, where we discussed fact number eight, that to go from three reproducing couples, in other words, Noah's three sons and their wives, to seven or eight billion people in a period of 4,500 years, you do not need an outlandish population growth. An average rate of one-half of one percent Per year will do that. So with facts 7 and 8, we can see that we can still see evidence all around us of the truth of the book of Genesis. You do need to know where to look, but it's not all that hard. And Genesis fits the world as we know it far better than the evolutionary and deep time alternatives. Last time we pointed out that if humans had been around for a million years, 
as the evolutionary hypothesis would have us believe, the current population of the Earth is far smaller than would be expected. To explain this discrepancy, those who support the evolutionary hypothesis say that famine, disease, plague, etc. simply kept the Earth's population greatly suppressed for most of our history. But this would mean that the human population of the Earth was literally on the brink of extinction for 99.9% of the time of its existence. That seems to be a bit at odds with the idea that we are the fittest creature on the Earth when it comes to survival. If we were so fit, we should have been reproducing a lot more. Yes. And furthermore, genetic researchers have found by comparing human DNA from around the world that humans share roughly 99.9% of their genetic material in common. In other words, humans, no matter where they live on the Earth, are almost completely identical genetically. Geneticists tell us that, in other words, human beings exhibit very little polymorphism or variation. Polymorphism, as related to genomics, refers to the presence of two or more variant forms of a specific DNA sequence that can occur among different individuals or populations. Simply put, the absence of polymorphism means that a given cohort of living creatures displays very little difference genetically. Species that have existed for hundreds of thousands or millions of years would be expected to show some amount of polymorphism because mutation in individuals would gradually lead to perceived differentiation. But studies of humans don't show this. The lack of a significant amount of polymorphism is consistent with a recent human origin. It is also consistent with the global flood where everyone on Earth except for one family died. Evolutionary models of origins would not predict such a low human genetic diversity. Mutations should have produced much more diversity than one-tenth of one percent over millions of years. Again, this means that pretty much the entire population of the Earth provides testimony to the accuracy of the first several chapters of Genesis. Let's remember that Moses wrote Genesis about 1,400 years before Jesus lived. He would have had very little knowledge of civilizations and peoples outside of Egypt and Palestine. Yet far away from where he was writing, people were living and developing in exactly the way we would expect if the account he was writing was true. We see that today. The size of the Earth's population is consistent with a significant bottleneck that occurred about 4,500 years ago. Moreover, the names of nations and rivers, even languages, give testimony to the first generations that emerged from the ark after the floodwaters receded. The lack of genetic diversity among human beings today testifies to a common ancestor. And as we have covered on other Anchored by Truth shows, even the bit of DNA contained in human mitochondria gives evidence that people today can trace their ancestry back to three female ancestors. So we can demonstrate that Moses gave us an accurate record of the creation of the earth and its subsequent destruction by a global flood by taking a look at the current population of the entire earth. But we can also verify that the Bible's description of what happened after the flood is validated. So today we want to take a look at the famous episode of God's confusion of the language that occurred at the city of Babel. So the ninth fact that every Christian needs to know is that we see evidence of the Bible's accuracy through the study of linguistics and languages.
Now, let's start this discussion by noting that it is not easy to study the differences or the commonalities in languages. Scholars often say that there are two major ways of classifying languages. All languages exhibit certain characteristics. They obey certain rules and constraints that apply to word order and other conventions. These rules are referred to as syntax. In addition, of course, all languages have vocabularies of their own. Each assigns meaning to particular sounds or collections of written symbols. In other words, each language has its own vocabulary and its own rules of grammar. And syntax tells the users how to arrange that vocabulary to communicate. And interestingly enough, this construction pattern for language is innate in human beings. Now, in his book, The Genesis Account, Dr. Jonathan Sarfati notes that there is an instance where a group of about 500 deaf children in Nicaragua developed their own unique sign language. One behavioral neuroscientist from Rutgers, Dr. Judy Cagle, described what happened as, quote, the first documented case of the birth of a language, close quote. Dr. Cagle reported that the sign language invented by the deaf children displayed the characteristics of other languages such as noun and verb agreement, subject-verb-object sentence construction, and distinct hand shapes and movements that were the building blocks of their communication. Dr. Cagle said, quote again, it's clear evidence of an innate language capacity, close quote. So the two ways of classifying languages look at these two different aspects. Typological classification looks at grammatical structures and classifies languages accordingly. But in the middle of the 20th century, Dr. Joseph Greenberg came up with a new way of classifying languages that is often referred to as the genetic approach. The genetic qualification of language uses core vocabulary to classify a language. Core vocabulary are words that don't change much over time. The method aims to see how many of these words are similar in different languages. Core vocabulary includes words that every vocabulary would be expected to contain, such as words for body parts, numbers, and personal pronouns. When clear patterns of similarities between languages are observed, then those languages are said to be related. Greenberg's method has become the most commonly used way of comparing languages because it works well for languages that don't have an abundance of historical written material that can show changes in language structure over time. Greenberg developed his method after noting that several African languages which had puzzled linguists had similar-sounding words for similar things, so he concluded those languages must be related. Core vocabulary between related languages is never identical, but is similar or what's called cognate. Now, an article from Creation Ministries International on this topic, which is entitled The Tower of Babel Account, Confirmed by Linguistics, says this about cognate words, quoting now, Words are cognate when they are shown to be consistent to the pattern of phonetical change that has taken place in the past. For example, the word tahi in Tongan might not look like kai in Hawaiian, even though they both mean sea. But if you compare Tongan tapu to Hawaiian kapu, which both mean forbidden, and Tongan tanata to Hawaiian kanaka, meaning man, you begin to see a pattern. Where Tongan has an initial T, Hawaiian has an initial K and one begins to see that the words might be related. They are cognate. Close quote.
So linguists can compare languages by their structure and their vocabulary. But how do linguists decide that languages are different? A common definition of a different language is mutual unintelligibility. In other words, languages are different when speakers of one language cannot understand speakers of another language. Now, of course, there are instances where speakers may be using different dialects of the same language, but when using dialects, the speakers can understand each other, even though there will still be distinct differences in pronunciation or word usage, vocabulary, etc. George Bernard Shaw once famously said that quote. The British and the Americans are two great peoples divided by a common tongue. Unquote. His observation was pretty clever, but speaking precisely, British English and American English are probably best described as being different dialects that had their origin in the same tongue. So, how does all this help us with our ninth fact that we see evidence that the Bible's accuracy through the study of linguistics and languages? Because of what we see in language variants around the world. For the reasons that we've mentioned very briefly above, there's no precise count of the number of the world's languages. But it's commonly thought there are six to seven thousand different languages spoken around the world. Now that seems like a lot, but that number becomes a lot less daunting when you consider that those six to seven thousand languages are usually grouped into about twenty or so language families. So what all that means is that even though there are thousands of separate languages worldwide, there are far fewer so-called language families, and languages are grouped into families because linguists can tell that those languages are related to one another. For instance, we sometimes hear of the Romance languages, such as Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and French. They are called Romance languages because they all derived from Latin, which was the language of the Roman Empire. Languages such as German, Dutch, and English are often grouped in a group called the Germanic languages. Languages such as Russian, Czech, and Polish are grouped in the Slavic languages. But what a lot of people don't realize is that all those groups share a similarity with some languages you wouldn't expect, such as Sanskrit and the languages spoken in India. So all of these groups are part of the Indo-European language family. Exactly. And the fact that the languages spoken in such diverse places as England, Spain, Russia, and India all bear some similarity might surprise us until we think back to what we learned from our seventh fact: that Noah's sons and grandsons left an indelible mark on history. So, hearkening back, we remember that Noah's oldest son Japheth had descendants that settled in territories that spanned the Eurasian territory all the way from England to India. And all of this is very consistent with what we heard from our opening scripture today about God confusing the language at Babel. In Genesis chapter eight, God had told Noah that his sons to quote, reproduce and spread over all the earth unquote. But we see from Genesis chapter eleven that the people had not obeyed that command. Instead, they had remained together and began to settle in a plain of Babylonia. And once they had decided to build a huge tower, which seemed to be an expression of pride and arrogance, Genesis chapter eleven verse four says that the people said, quote, "Now let's build a city with a tower that reaches the sky, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth." Unquote. So rather than spreading all over the earth as God had commanded. They wanted to create a tower that would be a reason to not be scattered all over the earth. 
Given that the Babel incident is only decades after the flood, it seems like those people had a pretty short memory, and at that point at least one of Noah's sons was still alive. You might have thought that they would have been more attentive to God's commands, given there was a rather stark example in the recent past of the consequence of disobedience. That's a good lesson for us today. Well, you might have thought that, but no. At any rate, God decided to enforce his command by going down and confusing their language. This effectively forced the people to begin to separate and to spread. And it also gave birth immediately to several new languages, which over the intervening 4,400 years or so, have continued to transform into the thousands of languages that are spoken around the globe. And we have distinct evidence of the truth of the Babel account because there is no evidence of a common point of origin among the many different language families. We can now see that within the families, there was most likely a common ancestor that's now probably lost, but there is no indication that there was a common ancestor among the families. There's commonality within the language family, but no commonality among the language families. Linguistically, at least, the various language families stand separate and distinct. Now, this is not what you would expect if the evolutionary hypothesis were correct and there was a single point of origin of all the languages on the earth. Moreover, the biblical explanation makes better sense about the number of languages in existence today. Let's just say that God divided the language in such a way that there were several new languages. If there were ten new languages present after Babel, then as time went on, those languages would begin to change. New languages would come into being, and some languages would fall into disuse or become extinct if the speakers all died from war or tragedy. In general, linguists know that it takes hundreds of years to create a new language, but languages can arise in very small populations. Today there are over 800 languages spoken in the country of Papua New Guinea. For simplicity's sake, let's just say that the number of languages present on the earth doubled every 400 years. That would mean that there would be over 5,000 languages present now after 4,200 years. That's pretty close to the number of languages estimated to exist right now. And linguists also know that languages tend to get simpler through time, not more complex. Dr. Sarfati noted in his book, quote, For example, in the Indo-European family, Sanskrit, Classical Greek, and Latin had many different noun inflections for different case, gender, and number, while verbs were inflected for tense, voice, number, and person. Modern descendants of these languages have greatly reduced the number of inflections, i.e., the trend is from the complex to the simpler, the opposite of evolution. English has also lost 65 to 85 percent of the Old English vocabulary, and many classical Latin words have also been lost from its descendants. Close quote. So it's a very straightforward point. Over time, languages, as studied by linguistics, tend to become simpler through time, not more complex. That runs directly counter to what you might expect if evolution were true. So, does all this discussion prove the truth of the Babel account in Genesis? It is not correct to say that a linguistic analysis, quote, proves the Genesis account, but it is correct to say that linguistic analysis is consistent with Genesis. 
You know, there's really no way to prove that a particular event happened in history because alternative explanations are always possible. But it is very fair to say that the biblical explanation for the languages that are heard all over the earth makes far more sense than the evolutionary alternative. The number of languages that are present, the linguistic relationship within language families, and the lack of relationship among language families are all consistent with the Genesis account. And this is yet another example where accepting the historicity of Genesis allows us to form a clear and coherent view of the world that we see and hear all around us, whereas the evolutionary hypothesis just leads to more and more questions, most of which are never answered satisfactorily. The point of the series and today's discussion is to help Christians guard against the narratives that circulate so widely today. One of those narratives is that the Bible cannot be trusted. So, to push that narrative, the critics must cast doubt on the reliability and authenticity of Scripture. But reality pushes back on the claim that the Bible can't be trusted. And that's what these ten facts that every Christian needs to know points out. Furthermore, the evolutionary explanations that are offered all come with significant problems. As we discussed in our last episode of Anchored by Truth, if humans had been around for over a million years, we should have countless numbers of additional people alive today. We should also find billions of remains of the artifacts of those who came before. We don't find either. Moses wrote Genesis 3,500 years ago. Humanly speaking, he could not have known what the population of the earth would be in 2022, what languages would be spoken, or how the names of Noah's grandsons would continue to be found in the names of rivers, cities, regions, and cultures. But God did. Moses just recorded the history God gave to him. He did so faithfully and accurately, and we see the fidelity of his account all around us today. This sounds like a good time for a prayer. To close, for today, let's listen to a prayer for our friends. A Prayer for Friends Heavenly Lord and Holy Father, we bless you and exalt you as we bow down before you. We are grateful that we can come into your presence and find a willing and loving Master. You are the one who framed the mountains and carved out the oceans. How much more, then, can you assist your children? Lord, we thank you for the blessings of having friends. We believe that it is you who brings people into our lives, who are a source of joy and fulfillment to us. We pray that you would help us to provide the same blessings to others. We thank you that you have helped us to meet people who help us to go beyond ourselves. Friends whose hearts are loving and generous toward us and who have steadfast spirits that keep them with us even during the difficult times. We pray that you would bless our friends with health, strength, and prosperity. We ask that you would look into the deepest recesses of their hearts as only you can and find the secret hopes and dreams there. As it conforms to your will, fulfill their desires and bring them more completely into your presence. Seek out those who do not yet embrace your name and your Son and bring them into communion with you. Let them know that only friendships grounded in you will last for eternity 
and that joy unspeakable awaits those who put on Christ and then fellowship in His kingdom. Help us to be sensitive to the dings and dents of life that afflict others, and help us to speak kind and encouraging words, especially when troubles are weighing them down. Help us to take action where such action will relieve pain or provide comfort. But help us also to know the boundaries that we should not cross. As Christ did, let us build relationships among the people we treasure and help us always to seek the good of others, even when we must set some of our own desires aside. It is your good pleasure to provide good gifts to us all and it is impossible that we should ever bless others without being blessed by you. Bring harmony and peace to our relationships. Help us for our part to not injure or grieve others. Help us to be peacemakers using the example that your son gave to us. Forgive us and help us to forgive others that all will know that we are the possession of your son in Christ's name we pray and offer praise. Amen. Amen. We hope you'll be with us next time, and we hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalcbooks.com, where... We're not perfect, but our boss is.